0: On this episode of Fish's Call Sheet, we are diving into the world of producing and post-production with a true artist who has tackled it all, uh, every aspect of post-production and producing you can imagine, including visual effects and and all the fancy things that you dive into to the very small details that make production possible. So today I have with me post-producer, Kip Kroger. Welcome, Kip.
1: Hey, Mike. How you doing, man?
0: I'm good. You've done so many projects, um, so I'd like to kind of dive through your career and, and you can kind of share with people kind of some details about what that, what that entails and, and how you work. But maybe we'll start with your producer and you've specialized a lot in post-production, which is where projects really get made in a lot of ways. I ask people, what is your official job
1: title? Post-producer is pretty pretty much what uh, the easy way to refer to it is, because as you know, there's so many producers uh, in television these days that range from writers to executives and everything else. So post-producer is sort of the, the job title. Uh, the credit ends up ranging from associate producer to co-producer, producer, supervising producer. It's been a little bit all over the board.
0: Yeah, it's pretty complex. You know, when I had uh, Randall, who's a close friend of yours, on, he talked about kind of the different levels of producer, and they change. Post-production even changes from project to project and takes so many different shapes. So what do people think you do when you say, I'm a producer or I'm a post-producer?
1: When I say I'm a post-producer, most people, their eyes glaze over a little bit, (laughs) and they think somewhat accurately, that we sit in the bunker and somehow take what they do on stage or on location or on set. And I half of them think I edit the show uh, when we first start talking. And then somehow we get it on the air. And they usually know things like color correction and and sound mix and editing. And so they'll say those things. And then they're uh, and then hopefully it's somewhere in that range. (laughs)
0: Okay. So then the question is, what do you really do?
1: Uh, what I really do, it's very different from show to show, man. And that's been one of the things that I love about it. First off, I've been incredibly lucky. Uh, I've worked with so many great showrunners, writers, line producers, editors, just across the board. Uh, not, not to mention Randall, who you, first, you, know, who you interviewed before. Uh, Randall has been like a mentor to me. Uh, he was one of the first people I met when I got to L.A., and I sat down with him and with the showrunner he was sort of partnered with at the time, Bill Lawrence. And they go, what do you want to do? I said, I want to produce. And they said, uh, you know, what are you, you're a writer, producer or not writer, producer? I was like, I'm not really a writer, man. And they said, all right, you got to follow Randall's path. Uh, Randall came up, it came up through post and cut his teeth. And then he moved over to production. And now he's super producer Randall. You know, Randall's taken that super producer idea and title and, and kind of run with it and constantly uh, expanding what he does and so it's been so fun but to watch what he does and to kind of learn from him even every day in the present so i get a lot of my ideas and direction from that but the day-to-day job is it it's usually the the headline is that we take everything that's done on set and it's our job to help get the best version of what the gold is that you guys do on set when the cameras are rolling and get that on the air and that usually involves A little bit of everything, you know, we have to juggle the delivery schedule. When the shutdown hit for COVID in March, four days after we shot the last episode of the Connors, we suddenly had to finish four episodes in a week and a half. And we had to get them, you know, we we had to sit down with Bruce, the showrunner, and he had to plow through editing those things. And then we had to push them through the post process to get them color corrected and the sound mixed before the lots got shut down because there was a real concern that we had air dates we had to hit on a weekly basis and Warner brothers was saying they were going to shut down a lot. And so our sound mixer wouldn't even be able to come in and do the work. It's also been a great sort of uh, process to get my own, you know, I have my own budget that we have to manage. I have a schedule that we have to juggle and it's always got to interface with the production schedule, you know, where you've got guys like Bruce who are very busy in the writer's room and they've got to be on set, you know, working with the actors and, then they've got to get into post and you got to make time to get the, the editing done. And then we have to figure out how involved they want to be in the final process. You know, I've worked with guys like Bruce who comes to every sound mix, makes sure it sounds the way he wants. There's other showrunners that insist on going to color correction that like to make sure that the show looks exactly the way they envision. And then I've worked with guys like Bill Lawrence who, once we talk about it, he goes, all right, don't fuck it up, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that my job is to go take it and put it through those last paces and make it as good as we can possibly make it. It ranges, you know, that's, we do that on multicams where we have an audience, you know, the guy can do the whole sound mix for a show like that in four hours. I mean, he literally, he gets the show from us, he spends an hour and a half going through it, cleaning it up, they bring a the laugh guy in, he works for an hour, and then we come in there and play it back and we're out of there. And it's amazing. But I've also worked on a show like Whiskey Cavalier, which was an action comedy we did for ABC. It was a globe-trotting action show. And the mix for the sound mix for that would take two days and sometimes three. And we'd have, you know, we were trying to get the right types of gunfire and all the fancy electronic sounds and making sure the explosions were good, but you could still hear the dialogue. And, you know, it's just a fun ride. (laughs) If people ever saw what an
0: editing computer looks like <laughs> once you start adding in all the sounds. Because it's so funny, we, we all think about the visual. And having edited, you know, you, you have a couple lines of visuals, right? You might have three, four lines of visuals. <laughs> but there can be 30 bars of different sounds and how they overlap. You're ramping one up and you're taking one down and the car in the background sound has to go down so that you can hear the conversation and then the gunfire and then gunfire in the distance and you know the sound of things hitting the ground maybe shells hitting the ground things being hit and people diving like all of these really subtle detail and layer to production it's so crazy when you start looking at sound especially anything that has action in it
1: oh yeah yeah one of the things that's really cool about Post production, aside from the fact that it's an enigma to most people, and it's kind of it feels like it's a little bit like what happens behind the curtain, because I'm either sitting in an editing room with an editor and a showrunner, and we're trying to find a way to take a show that's 34 minutes long and get it down to 22 minutes, you know, because you have to hit that that uh, running time, you know, within a five second uh, window, or I'm sitting in a color bay looking at the ways we're coloring stuff to make things look just right and make sure everybody looks as good as they can look or run a soundstage watching it play back, you know, that way. But you're right. It was in the, when we were doing whiskey, there would be, they'd have two video tracks at the top. And then there would be 20 to 30, at least for these action sequences where there'd be a fight and there's punches and kicks and grunts. And there's stuff we're using from production. There's stuff they're stealing from another take. There's, you know, there's added um, environment stuff. Then we're putting score underneath it all that's got to somehow work with everything. It's fun. Uh, and it's also fun, you know, to, to see how different people approach it. Uh, one of Bill Lawrence's favorite things I think is he let's try and trick the audience. It's a game of, uh, you know, see if you can spot what I'm getting away with here, whether it's something like undateable where the editor's cut would be 12 plus minutes over the time we're supposed to deliver which is the equivalent of a show that's a third longer than it's really supposed to be. Yeah. Or if it's something like we did the show Ted Lasso that's airing right now on Apple, mm-hmm. and we had an episode where their running times are more like it's a looser range of between 20 to 30 minutes, somewhere in there. We had our first cut of one of the episodes come in at over 50 minutes. I mean, it might as well have been two episodes. Right. And somehow we have to get that tell that same story in half the time, you know, and so it's it's a fun process. it can be uh, it can be exhausting, but it's fun it is you know on the
0: Connors, we have so much content that ends up getting cut because we're i don't know six to eight minutes over usually, so we're not quite double we 're usually a third because I play a character who has stuff to do in his family stuff, but it doesn't always pertain to the say a story, it is a B or C story. So there's been a number of times where that stuff ends up, you know, there's great moments that end up getting cut out. And again, that's the hard part of post-production is you often end up with too much good stuff. And then it's how do I cut all of this down and then still share the whole story and get that across to an audience within the framework of my time allowance.
1: Yeah. It's, and especially with comedies, it's, I think it's even harder. You know, one of the things that like, oh, go, I've worked on dramas that are more straightforward dramas and it becomes much more about as long as you're telling the story and hitting the story points. But the minute you inject comedy into these shows, whether it's a multicam, you know, with an audience or it's an action comedy or anything in between, you'd never want to cut great jokes. It's just, it, it hurts so much, you know, and you need that, let that, that is the tone, and that's the fun of what you're doing. But you can't lose your story points and the, the the connective tissue that gets you from you know each story point to tell your story. And you know, working with guys like Brian Schnuckle who cuts the Connors, is you know it's like watching an artist at work. I mean, these guys get in there and they're able to they their bag of tricks gets bigger every year. Um, watching how they can take a shot where someone's in half the frame and make the person disappear. My job is, is then to see what they've sort of done a rough version of and go, all right, cool. We're going to clean all these up. So these, these tricks that you used, now I'm going to take that bag of tricks and expand on it. You know, we're now going to clean these things up. So there's no evidence that we ever did a trick there.
0: Right. And, and whether it be making sure you can't see, a little piece of the person or the person disappearing in the background if they've now no longer in the scene because then it wouldn't make sense for an audience. Um, And then sometimes it's cleaning up little details. You know, uh, when Brian was on the show, he talked about one of the things that he picks on you for a lot is taking away the little marks on the floor, the little pieces of tape for where actors, he said, he says, that's the bane of his editing existence. Right. And so, and, and he mentioned to me, you know, (laughs) <laughs> poor Kim, you know, we, we send him information. I'm like, I can't take care of that one. I don't know it. Right. So there are these really subtle things that the audience never sees that really from a nuts and bolts standpoint for us are so standard.
1: It's also fun to, when you start working with different people is understanding what their priorities are. You know, it's one of the things when we interview editors on shows, and it's also a question immediately for the showrunner is what's important to you? Are you more concerned with the continuity of something so that it so if somebody is lifting an arm and you cut to the other side, that arm better be in the same spot because it's going to be a distraction. Or are you somebody that goes, I see him start to move it so when I cut over, the hand can be up here. You know, Gary Goldberg, uh, who sort of brought Bill along, he created, they created Spin City together used to do a lot of things where uh, people would jump through doorways, like a door would start to open and they'd be three steps into the room. And so Bill loves to try and do tricks like that. He, one of his favorite stories is the time on scrubs where we had uh, Turk and JD walking down a hallway and he needed a piece of them walking to make get, we had a lift, like a two minute scene out. So he needed a piece of them walking to throw some voiceover over it. And then, then they come into a, you know, a hospital room and he's like, look, just go look through any of the last four episodes. Just find me a shot of them walking down a hallway and I can make this work. The editor, John Michelle uh, grabbed a, a shot and Bill comes in and he goes, all right, let me see. And he goes, I Bill, I can't do this, but this is all I was able to find. He goes, all right, let me see what you got. And he watches it. And they walk down the hall. He turns the corner he comes in and he goes, you see why I can't use that. Right. And Bill goes, no one's ever going to notice that man. And what was going on was uh, they're walking and Turk is in green scrubs and they turn the corner and Turks in completely different color scrubs, right? His entire clothing changed color. no one's going to notice this, John, I promise you, just let it go. He goes, I can't do this in good conscience, Bill. So he goes, look, let's see. He calls the whole post staff in. Like it's another editor. It's like the assistant editors, post supervisor. We all come in. He goes, I want you guys to watch this time. What's wrong with the shot? He plays it once. Everybody looks at it and goes. Uh, you know, he's on the, his left foot when he turns this corner, his right foot there. He's like, No, play again. Watch this again. He's like, Uh, is he moving his hand differently? And Bill goes, See, John. And John pounds the desk. And he's like, He's in completely different color scrubs there. And Bill says, See, nobody's ever gonna see this stuff. And one of the things I learned from that was that you, the, the thing he always likes to say is if there's, if they're noticing, some of these things, these cheats we make, you've got bigger problems than the cheat you're making because your goal is that they're absorbed enough in what's happening with the story and the comedy and everything else. You can get away with a lot of this stuff. And so it's fun to, to try and figure out how far we can push those tricks and still get away with it without distracting people from the flow of the story.
0: Yeah, that suspension of disbelief. As long as the story works, the audience wants to go with you. It's yes. <laughs> the moment that your story doesn't work that the audience. I think it's it's like boredom, right? Then you start looking around for everything else, so you have a bigger problem. And I think it's it's totally valid as long as it's working, you get some allowances so you can push that that line in the envelope.
1: Yeah, and the other thing about it is he, his other joke that he likes Bill likes to make of this. Enough. A lot of these stories are from Bill, so I because because I've worked with him, I started you know, after I met with him and Randall when I was, I first moved to town and they said, look, you should be a post, you should go through post and become a producer. They gave me a set PA gig on a pilot. They gave me a post PA gig on Scrubs and I've worked on and off for Bill my entire career. You know, I'd worked for a couple of years on Scrubs. I'd go leave and do some stuff and grow and move up and I'd come back and I worked on another show with him. You know, I'd leave and I'd go do, be a, I learned to be a post producer on a couple other shows. I came back and said, look, man, I can produce for you now. So a lot of these stories come from there, but he always likes to say, he's like, look, I'll take the letters for that. You know, dear Bill Lawrence, I was a huge fan of scrubs until he turned that corner and his his scrubs changed color. I cannot watch your show anymore. Sincerely a a lost fan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we get those, I get those questions all the time. And I'm like, please come back, take a look at the next episode, give us a chance and hopefully we entertain you because Beyond that, there's nothing I can do, right?
1: Well, and that's also like, you know what? Props to you for catching it. I mean, yep. if, you, if you can watch a show and you are attentive enough to details mm-hmm. that you can catch us on some of this stuff, then, I, you know, that's impressive that you're, you're noticing the details. Like, thanks for watching our show so closely. Mm-hmm. But that's where the interesting part comes in for me is I think it feels like there's bigger fish to fry than the continuity sometimes. If we can get away with it and still tell the story and make a joke work, I mean, we've had jokes where you, we've used the setup from one take and the punchline from another take, and the match in, is not great, but it's the best build of a joke. So right. you've got to use the part that works the best, you know, from a story perspective and a comedy perspective. And so I think it's fun to, to even get into those debates with people and let them, let them come at you with them, you know?
0: What is the best part of your job,
1: Kim? Uh, people. It's working with everybody. I, so I have a biology degree. And I studied computer science for a uh, couple years in college. And I thought I wanted to get into that. But the idea of, you know, coding by myself and working in a dark room gave me shivers. Uh, I'm, I think by nature, I'm a bit ADD and producing embraces that, you know, I can be over here in an edit bay and paying attention and working on that and get an email about something else and fo- switch my focus over to that for 10 minutes and then pop out and go to a color correction session and then come back to editing and go over and do sound. And I can just bounce all over the place. And that's just in post, you know, in, in my own projects, when it's, you're doing production and creative as well, you can bounce from all of these things. And by nature of production and post being a freight train that you can't slow down in many cases, you know, you can drill down to something for a period of time, but you have to keep bouncing from one to another. And I've been lucky to work with great people between Randall and, you know, Barbara Brace, who's the line producer on um, Connors now and Kent Zabornak who was there in between them, you know, and, you know, and Bill and Bruce. And I worked with Jeff Schaefer, who was, who's a joy to work with, you know, these guys across the board, Getting the chance to work with good people makes this job fun, and it gives you an environment where I get to be creative and I get to be a little nerdy because that's kind of how my my brain works. I like technology and I like order and I like organization and all that stuff. And I also love you know being a goof and having a good time with this stuff. And you know to to be learning from people as my career has kind of progressed and get to work under and with people that I really respect and I really enjoy spending time with. It's been, it, it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm having to work very hard, you know, it's just kind of fun.
0: Yeah, when you love what you do, it's not so much work. And I, I think it's funny, you know, you talked about being a biology student and then computer science and people go, well, how do you end up here? You end up here by following your passions and some of those bits and pieces and the framework of things that you learned along the way help you manage these things now. And, and you know how to understand how organisms and, and groups interact together and the importance And those things relate in some ways to post-production because you're integrating all these things. You, you have ways of taking that computer science and it adds to your savvy when it comes to post-production. So I laugh because people go, how do those things fit together? You make them fit together. And, uh, Well, ADD is not bad. (laughs) I think those of us who really are passionate have a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I think you do. And I also, you know, my mom always gets a kick out of what I do because it always, every time I talk to them, they're a little baffled by how you don't lose your mind, you know, just by doing this stuff. And part of it is I used to drive drive my mom crazy when I was a kid because I procrastinated. I didn't like to do things until there was a real deadline. And those are all the people I deal with now, you know. (laughs) Bill's a perfect example, and so is Bruce. They know what their deadlines are, and you are not going to get them with a fake deadline that they have to hit before that because they're going to laugh at you or just ignore you. And so understanding how those procrastinators work has been invaluable to me (laughs) in surviving.
0: Well, the deadlines are the best of the hardest part, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, one of the things actually that's been a, a nightmare in a way for post-production is these shows that are dropping the whole se- season at once, mm-hmm. because all of a sudden, you know, one thing that's a be- that, that is challenging at the beginning, but becomes your blessing with something like the Connors is you're hitting weekly air dates. You get into a rhythm where, you know, you gotta, you gotta mix every Wednesday, you gotta color every Tuesday, you gotta lock a show every Monday, which means you gotta get the cuts from the networks and the studio and everybody all leading up to that. And you got to hit those marks. They can slide, you know, we usually build in a cushion to accommodate a little bit of give and take, you know, a day or two here, a day or two there. And I usually keep a few tricks up my sleeve for the emergencies, but there's a regularity to it all. And you clear an episode, you know, you finish the first episode and you clear it. And then the next one falls in and the clear the second one. And then the fifth one comes into play, you know, so there's only like four or five that are in play at a time. But these shows where we're dropping a whole season, like Ted Lasso, they want to push and deliver everything at once you're not juggling four episodes that are in play at one time you've got all 10 that are all active in some state that need attention whether three of them are locked for picture which means the editing part is done and they've locked in exactly what the story is going to be told and how the editing is going to be but then two of them are, are need color correction and three of them haven't been locked and they need to be edited and another one the director hasn't gotten to, and another one's in the sound. And so when you've got all of them in play, you have it's harder to get producers to sign off on the milestones. So everything stays in flux, which is uh which makes it a little bit more a little bit more back and forth, <laughs> a little bit more malleable. Now, for me, I also think as you go, right, a
0: show gets a rhythm. So one of the beauties of having weekly milestones or whatever is you get some feedback. You can feel what really worked. Uh, sometimes you get to watch them on air after everything's been done. And even then you look back, and you go, okay, I like this. I think we should do more of that and do less of this. So as we produce these shows where you do the whole season all at once, that's another thing. I, I feel like you just get a slightly different product. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying better or worse. I think it, it just is different but I think you can tune and tone your show a little bit as you go when you have milestones
1: too. Totally. And it's also, it's, uh, we call it course correction. If you have a show that starts airing. So if you air your first episode while you're editing the fifth, then that means when you start going into your color correction, your sound mix for the fifth, sixth, seventh episodes, you've already seen how the first two look on air Mm -hmm. and hear, hear how they sound. So One of the things that you learn in post is down we call it downstream. So we make a final product, you know, that looks, we watch it in these, on these monitors that are nicer, they're $30,000 monitors, you know, we listen to it on a soundstage that's got more speakers than, than, you know, an amphitheater sometimes with this new Atmos thing that they're doing. So you listen to it in these you know, perfect environments. And then you turn it over to the network. And, you know, for broadcast networks, they compress what our big signal is down to, you know, a 720, which is like H, barely HD, right. you know, signal. And they put all these limiters and stuff to fit it into their box and they put it on the air. And you watch it on the air and you go, that's not what it looked like in the room we were in. What do we do? Like, how do we address that?
0: And what do you tweak, right? Like, what do you tweak so that the downstream looks better?
1: Right, and it's a variable that you can't, that you really do have to kind of, it's a, it's a bit of guesstimation. And one of our rules that we try and stick to is you really can't, you can't do your finishing for the downstream because it's a variable, and it's a variable you'll never have control over. But you do want to take it into account in a sort of subconscious state, you know, where you go, yeah, but when we watch stuff on ABC, it tends to feel the colors are a little more contrasty. So maybe we don't make a big shift, but just turn that dial 5%, you know, just to to try and accommodate that a little bit. So you do very subtle things in that sense.
0: This is the world that I love because it makes what production becomes. And it's the part that nobody dives into because I never really thought about the downstream, but I did know because based on certain networks, some things come out more contrasty. Some channels crank up your volume a little bit. Some down your volume a little bit. So things that you thought were a great loud explosion, for example, (laughs) comes out and you're like, not quite, didn't have the oomph I expected it to have where you're like, oh man, that overwhelmed everything. Yeah. Visuals, you know, some channels, I don't know what they do in their process of compressing and things, but sometimes they become a little contrasty and a little pale and others are like super vibrant. And I think it's the nature of whoever they have visually watching it before they put it out, like you said, you don't know until you see it. So proof is in the seeing. And then you look at some of that stuff and you go, okay, well, we're going to adjust that. And then you kind of have to, you have to know who your target is, right?
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's an inexact science and most networks will tell you that their goal is not to affect our content. You know, their goal is always to try and deliver what we give to them. I've spent a lot of quality time with the broadcast operations team at ABC And they don't, they can't control what spectrum or direct TV does to the signal once they send it out. So we'll go over there and compare the Connors top, you know, top quality master to what we saw on the air. And they'll go, all right, now let's compare it to what we sent out to spectrum and direct TV. And so you, you're seeing there like, okay, so the change comes at the next part that no one can control. We have, we can do it and they, neither can they. It's out of our hands. It's the best we can do with this. So it's, it's a, um, it's an interesting process. It's a lot of problem solving, which I kind of enjoy.
0: For people who are technical people in our audience, right? Sure. What's your best advice from a sound standpoint?
1: In, if you are creating content or if you're doing what? Uh, either
0: one, either creating or from a post-production standpoint, just the thing that, you know, if you're going to give somebody a tip. You one are of the t-
1: big things that we deal with that is a, a challenge in post-production for sound if we don't get things split up from production if you do something on set where say say you're singing a song and they play the music that you're singing to on speakers on set mm-hmm. all of a sudden when we get the post I can't separate your voice from that music so I can't I don't have control of those levels so I can't adjust anything with your voice or with the music, you know, to our liking because they're all one one piece now. Right. So the biggest thing for sound is always to try and get, try and record things all separately as much as you can. Yes, many That also goes for overlapping channels. things or people saying things. I, yeah, yeah. Try, as can. much as you can, try and keep things separated. What, the beauty of something like the Connors is that it is supposed to be a live, you know, room of people interacting with an audience and everything else. So you you get away with a little bit more of being like, no, that's really how it, would, it should feel. It's okay for the overlap to be there, but it um, it creates more, it creates challenges.
0: How about for color correction? What would be your advice or your secret for color correction?
1: The biggest thing with color correction for me is making people look, you know, you want to, you want... You want to make sure that your talent, the people that you're watching look good. So you always want to protect your talent and you want to focus on making sure they look good, that everything looks real. You don't want to get, you know, it's cool to stylize things. And I love to do that sometimes, but I feel like you have to have a light hand when you get into stylizing
0: videos. And if you go online and you're, you check out a editing course or you check on like YouTube and you watch these how to, and everybody right now kind of talking about teal, right? Like a teal thing to add a cinematic view of whatever you're doing. Adjust your color very slightly because a little goes a long way. The footage you take, if they don't match, you can play with that color as much as you want, but it's real hard to get things to dial in. So the more you play with them, the more
1: they start to kind of stand out and look a little wacky. Yeah. And the, here's the other thing. And what, this is one of the fun parts of post-production is the technology is our friend, the things that we can do in post-production kind of blow your mind. Um, we can take a, I can take a shot with you and somebody else in it. You know, you, you and Sarah could be next to each other, you know, kind of a little bit off angle, and one of you's in focus and the other isn't. And I can I can fix that now. The technology is now there to keep you as you are and put her into focus and have it look believable, um, which is crazy because it doesn't just... They can do that for a shot that's 10 seconds long because the artificial intelligence algorithms that they do can track that and find her face and put it in focus and figure out how much it should be. And, and it's amazing. And it's made... It's allowed us to use, you know, this is the other thing is it's allowed us to use stuff in the show that 10 years ago you would have said, ah, now we can't use that shot. You know, they're out of focus the whole time. Now you can use a better performance because, you know, we can, I can make that kind of thing work for you.
0: It's amazing. The technology is, is amazing. What are some of the programs that you use a lot?
1: Well, that's, and this is where the, the post-production world and me as a producer start to diverge. Right. You know, just, post-production just... Is, it is edit on Avid's. Um, that's the industry standard editing software. Um, most color correction is done in a DaVinci Resolve. Uh, sound mixes are mostly done in Pro Tools. And those are kind of the big ones. You know, a lot of visual effects are done in... Uh, After Effects, or the Flame, or then we get, you know, now they're getting into things like using video game engines for pre-visualization, which is really interesting, you know, where they take, kind of like you would with a video game, is you build an environment based off of information you can get from even Google Maps these days. And within that environment, you can start to create your characters, and place them, and move the camera around, like and adjust things like a video game. And so it allows for quick iteration, But that's the software that you use for the actual technical work. I use a lot of email, <laughs> a lot of email and a lot of watching clips on QuickTime. And that's, that's, you know, aside from that, the other thing that as far as a technology standpoint goes with the world we're in now with lockdown, which has changed everything. You know, we are reinventing a lot of the post production workflow because everyone has to operate remotely and you still have to be able to collaborate. You know, it's much better to collaborate when you can see someone's face. So there's software like this stuff called Evercast that allows an editor to share their screen so you can see what they're editing and also have a video chat going on with a producer so you can see each other's faces. And then you can edit in real time. I could edit something here, show you my screen, you can see my face and you and I could edit, you know, a show while you're in your house and I'm in mine. But as with everything, Evercast was becoming popular right when lockdown hit. And then the massive need for it was overwhelming to get, even just getting support from them. A lot of businesses that are based on providing hardware and infrastructure and stuff like that all have to get into this remote game Mm -hmm. and some facilities, like one of the facilities that we use for the Connors digital film tree uh, is a small boutique house. They're not a big conglomerate, you know, that does all the things, but they specialize in being on the cutting edge of technology. They've been pitching everybody to go remote for years. They go, look, I know you guys are used to doing things this way, but, we have some tools that you might like. It might make your life easier. You know, you don't have to drive across town to, to go from a location set into an edit bay and then over to sound mix or a, a, your color correction. We got software that you can go to one place and see all those. And people are going, yeah, that's a luxury. And we don't have money in our budget for it. Their phone's been raining off the hook since March because everyone knows that these guys have been pitching this for so long. So they've now, they're now amping up their offerings because they do provide infrastructure. So they can put our footage into a cloud that the vendors can access securely. You know, they can provide a remote interactive solution to do remote editing and, re- and remote accessing the files and all types of stuff like that. So it's, the software is, is a constantly changing thing, especially right now. Most of my stuff, I'm on the viewing side of most of it.
0: What was the moment Kip, that you knew you wanted to be in the entertainment industry?
1: Yeah. I One of the biggest ones. So I was a computer science major for a couple of years. I switched to biology because I didn't really know sort of what to do with getting into a film program. I went to North Carolina State. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that they were necessarily known for. And to be honest, I didn't know how I would get into the industry and my parents didn't know. The only real link I had to it was a friend of mine that I went to boarding school with had grown up in the industry. His parents, his dad was a big executive. His mom was an actress. And we were still friends, uh, even though we went to different colleges, we kept touching base over the summers and we would say, let's, what are you doing? Like, let's do some projects. Like we did back in boarding school. It'd be fun. And so we would get together and we'd spend months talking on the phone and stuff. And I remember we found this band, where I went to college that was pretty popular. They would play all the big parties and stuff like that. And I remember calling him and going, hey man, I think these guys could, uh, it'd be great to to put their music in a movie or a show or something we put together. And he's like, really, let me hear him. And I played him, he goes, we should make a music video for those guys. And I was like, I mean, I'd love to do that. Can we do that? Do we know how to do And he's like, yeah, we can, we can figure it out. And I was like, really? Like, do you have any idea? He's like, trust me, we'll be okay, I promise you we can do this. I was like, all right, cool, I'll go make it happen. So I tracked these guys down, I tracked their manager down, I hounded them for a while, I finally got to meet him, I finally got to talk to him, I convinced him we could do this thing. He came on, you know, we, we convinced them, we found a song in their new album that we made this music video in the backyard. Um, my parents had moved out of this house that I'd grown up in and had moved a half hour away and hadn't sold the house yet. So it was an empty house. So we took over that for a few weeks, shot the music video there with just friends and family. We grabbed it. We drove down to Wilmington, North Carolina, where they make a bunch of TV shows and we pulled up and we said, we want to rent equipment to shoot a music video. And he said, well, so what do you need? And we said, Oh, everything. <laughs> and the guy this guy, you know, this guy's been doing this for, for 30 years. And he looked at us and he goes, Oh, jeez." All right, here, you're going to need some of this, some of this, some of this, some of this. And he gave us a pile of lights and C stands and a bunch of equipment and sandbags. And he, filled it up the car. And he said, all right, you know, you bring it back in two weeks and you should be fine. And we drove back and we set it up and we played with it and we popped circuit, we were popping circuit breakers every 15 minutes. And I remember we were doing this and I went, we went and sat and had dinner with my parents one night and they said, you know, my mom was talking to me and I was kind of somewhere else. And she's like, what are you, what are you thinking about? I was like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out how we're going to do this thing because we're, you know, I started talking through all the, proce- the process of what we were Troubleshooting that day. And she's like, I've never seen you so focused and enthusiastic about anything ever. And I remember sitting there being like, huh, you know, you're right. Like, this is fun and it's engaging. It seems like there might be a career that you can make out of doing this. I don't know how to really get there yet, but if there is, like, I want to find out. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a galvanizing moment. Yeah. Because from there, then the next summer, he and I made this documentary that was a huge, uh, huge experience for, for both of us. Um, and we had another moment with that where it was like, are you going to do this or not? Mm-hmm. And so those, those couple moments, you know, they tracked through and they stay with you. I,
0: I think I may have unintentionally given my daughter one of those moments in the last couple months of quarantine. We, we were sitting here. And she started talking to me about production and I started talking about how you miss it right when you can't do it. So we decided to make a short film in our small living space using three rooms and trying to come up with something significant. So we're in the process of editing it, but the crew was my daughter Isabel and I. She's my cinematographer and my camera person and my my, my co-creator and you know my writing partner and i wrote the script and then it's mostly and then i I did it remotely with the few people i needed we used his friends from college and and an actor that i knew who she's amazing and we did it remotely (laughs) via zoom same as we're doing this and my daughter all of a sudden said oh i really like this and so now we're in the process of editing and color correcting and doing all these things and uh you learn a lot when it becomes your passion and you the necessity makes you learn, right? Your and yeah. your passion pushes you.
1: And the circumstance, if you when you know, one of the things I think that's so fun about making content and also about the the process and the industry and all this stuff is you can you can it's it's not hard to conceptualize your destination. You know, once you have an idea of what you want to make, whether it's a short film that you've got an idea for or a web series, you've got a you know, longer idea for or a documentary that you're passionate about the content, you know, about the topic, whatever it is, you can kind of wrap your head around the destination. Mm-hmm. So it becomes like, all right, how do I get to that place on the map? That's something that we can as people, I think you can kind of track. And then as you get into it, you start to see like, oh. Well, one day I can be a writer, you know, one day I can be a cinematographer. One day I can be an editor and you're doing all these things servicing the same goal when you're, when you're trying to make these sort of smaller projects and you're using different muscles and you're doing things where you get these little wins. You're like, Oh, I figured out how to make that, <laughs> that, like, I didn't know if I'd be able to make to shoot that shot where the camera would do this and turn. You know, I didn't know if we'd be able to track it, but it looks awesome, you know, or you know, I didn't know if that joke would play, but the minute I saw you do it, like, there it is, you know. And,
0: and, then, and, and then this flip side of where you look at something, and you go, okay, that didn't work. We're going to have to redo it, right? But even in that, there's, I tell people all the time, there's a beauty in failing. Oh, yeah. Because failure teaches you so much. We have to change, and I tell my athletes this as a coach, is you got to change the way you look at failure. Failure should be a step towards something. It tells you either you need to make an adjustment or you didn't do something quite right. But now you know what either doesn't work or what started to and where you're lacking.
1: I think that's so crucial is seeing the failure not as a dead end. Right. But it's a step. You know, it's pushing past the failure just turns it into another step in the process. Yeah. Stopping at the failure makes it a dead end when you're doing a short film and there's a scene that just doesn't work, how do you, when you're in editing, how do you get around it? How do you cut the scene and find a way to patch together the story using other footage you've got? You know, we did that one time where we had something, it was a short film. We were just made it up, you know, and shot it fast, but it was on film and everything. So we've invested all this time and money and stuff and we're editing we go, Oh God, that scene's no good. And, but the good news is the short film is 15 minutes too long anyways so how do we get rid of this so let's ditch that scene and let's find a way to patch over it and then you feel you feel vindicated you're like aha that failure was wasn't a failure it was supposed to be a bad scene because now it's such a better piece you know right and and you found
0: a new way and sometimes those happy accidents become defining moments in a project
1: Yeah, I remember, I mean, the documentary we made, we were over there and we were figuring out the story as we went. This was actually one of the biggest things for us is it was, uh, this short headline is it was about a school in Soweto, South Africa for children at risk. Mm -hmm. And this woman would go to the schools and find, she'd go to the administrators, she'd say, hey, show me your worst kids that you've given up on. Show me the ones that you just have no hope for. And they'd say, all right, Here and she'd sit down in a room with them and she'd talk to them for a couple minutes and she'd go look where do you see yourself in 5 years and almost inevitably they'd all stop because they didn't have an answer right and she'd go look come with me and i'll i'll show you where you can be in 5 years i'll help you see what your future can be and she was helping kids from ages you know 8 to 20 and this whole range and some of the kids lived at the school some of the kids had been through traumatizing things. Some of them were rape victims. Some of them were um, thieves. Some of them had committed lots of, you know, a number of crimes and had been in jail before she had the whole spectrum there. So we go over and we film this documentary. We meet these amazing people and we're, we edited the film and we've sold the film to HBO and we're, we're doing the final sort of things. It's supposed to come out like Friday night. And on Tuesday we get news, the woman supposedly coached a bunch of her kids on their stories. Oh, And we I remember we just froze. I remember sitting in a, in, like in a room with my friend, Charlie, just looking at each other going, what are we going to do? Like, how do we deal with this? And I remember we talked to one of the students at the school that was one of the older students that was kind of a star of our film and had led so much of this. And he, he validated what we had heard. But he said, and so then we started asking him. You know, well, what about this person? What about this person? What... And it turned out that, and this is one of those failure moments where we found out that the people in, that we had featured in the film were all legit mm. because their stories and what they'd been through rose to the top right. because it was authentic. These people were telling, were sharing something very personal and painful with us. And the experiences that we tracked in the film, actually, by nature of it being naturally what was the strongest, uh, from a storytelling perspective, turned out to be the real ones. So it was a validation of the storytelling and filmmaking process. It was a huge disappointment in the woman, you know, and the corruption that, you know, is is there. But it was a definitely a learning moment at the same time where you just kind of, see how things can go sideways. And, you know, the last thing we ever wanted to do was to be putting out something that was fake. You know, you don't want, because we've been moved by it. You know, we've been moved by this, by these stories and these people that we met and we felt very close to it. And the idea of putting out a version of it that was, that wasn't authentic made us freeze. Cause you go, well, that's not, that's not who we want to be. That's not what we want this film to represent. And then to find out that it had worked out by nature was uh, you know, was a little bit of pushing through that and, and a big reward in, in kind of the process, I guess.
0: Efficacy and morality matter to you. Um, um, having integrity matters to you. That's kind of the way you just go through your life. It's one of the things knowing you personally that I, I admire so much outside of the work, you know, and it carries over into your work and it's really admirable. I commiserate with you in that moment, but there is a beauty as somebody who knows you. It's not a shock to me. You connected with the parts that were real and that your ability to see through that. And and it's a beautiful thing too, because it's a compliment that you, you don't anticipate, or you didn't set out for. The authentic portion of you was able to weave its way and cut out any of the noise, right? To get to the real truth of what was going on. For those people, you were telling their story. Yeah,
1: that's crazy, man.
0: It's it's amazing. All right, Kit. What was the dream coming into this business, and what is your dream now?
1: The dream coming into this business was to to make movies or TV that people would love to watch. Like I and I. And I came into this thing so green and clueless. It was, it really was magical. You know, ignorance really is bliss sometimes. And all I knew was I wanted to be a producer and I aspired to people like, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer and Ron Howard and Brian Grazer and these guys. And, you know, I'd followed them and read about them for so long. And the idea of being a part of this create the creative process, you know, of finding ideas and working with writers and, being a part of the production and helping it, you know, get all the way out there. It's evolved. It's, it's evolved so much. You know, I've, I've, my whole career has been in television, you know, aside from short films here and there and some sort of things I've been trying to develop in my own time. uh, You know, it's been in television and I've gotten to work with very creative, interesting producers. I've gotten to work with fun writers and I've gotten to see things like career paths I didn't even know about. You know, I didn't know much about the idea of being a non-writing executive producer in television. You know, these people that, are, that run these small production companies that, you know, help run, sh- help run shows with showrunners. You know, work with people all the way through the process. You know, I've learned from people like Randall who, by way of learning the post-production process and the line producing aspects of the production process and using all of his creativity and directing and moving into you know selling shows and development and the ability to do all of these things as part of a being a producer has kind of reminded me again how much i don't know <laughs> and how rewarding it's been to be open to my career evolving and growing in ways that i may not have anticipated or ways or act of that evolution being different than how I envisioned it I guess you could say
0: yeah I always think never losing that kind of childlike wonder of being okay with the fact that you don't know everything and what you don't know sometimes drives you to new innovation and creativity and that's what pushes us to find something new to go out there and venture to try a new a program, a way of doing things, uh, an idea that other people said oh, probably won't work or you can't do that. You go, hey, Well, could we, right? Could we make it to the end of that? If I know the ends here, like you said before, can I build the bridge there? I think that's the beautiful part. I don't ever want to lose that wonder and joy and imagination because that's, I think, where the best work comes from.
1: I, I totally agree, man. I think selfishly speaking right now I'm at a sort of junction or crossroads in my career where I'm pivoting over to production. You know, I've been producing post for so long and i I'm now getting an opportunity to integrate myself more into the production process. I'm working as a production supervisor on a pilot while also overseeing post, you know, and sort of getting the chance to, to, to move off the sidelines of production, you know, where, I've been very involved in it for years, but now I'm actually moving into the seat where you've got to use the muscles to make decisions and ask yourself hard questions and, and figure things out that I watched it. People figure out for a long time. And that's been really exciting because like I keep saying, this idea of creative producing sort of taking as many pages as I can from Randall's book, you know, is built on, experience and knowledge. And the more I can understand more of the process and the more I get to work across the process, you know, the entire, you know, any, as early as you can be involved in from a development standpoint, all the way to delivering a show, the more effective I think I can be in that title, you know, or in that job. And again, you get to work with more people, you get to work with more talented, fun people that, you know, have things to share and experiences to to be a part of. So it's, it's all fun.
0: The writer, creator, director, producer in me starts listening to you. I love working with good people who are passionate. So I start thinking about, Oh, I have this project over here. I wonder if I should, (laughs) I wonder if I should run that by Kip. I wonder if Kip would be excited about this. And and I think that's the beauty is all of us teach each other. You know, I'm learning from Randall and I think good people find each other. And then you, you know, you work with the people that you really admire and that you, Help get things done. Post-production probably is the most clear path for this truth is in our business, every project essentially has to be willed into existence. And I I think the beauty of post-production, especially people who start there, is you become the conduit to make that dream come true and you watch people impose their will and how they use that and shape it. And so then I think you start to realize, especially if you're a driven, creative, and passionate person, you start going, oh, I know how to use my will for that, right? Like, I, okay, I, I know how to, oh, I see what you did there. Okay, that's a good note for me as I go forward. Okay, so when I'm in that position, so I, I just can't wait, Kip. I can't wait to see all of the stuff that, that flows through you and comes from this process for you. Oh, thank you, man. What are some of the experiences or things you either couldn't wait to tell your loved ones or that you couldn't believe you got to do when you look back at your amazing career?
1: Oh man. You know, I, the list of fun adventures I've been on is just kind of crazy. I mean, it's been a little bit of everything, you know, I think some of the highlights look working at scrubs was a defining jumping off point for my career just because I was a PA, you know, you're nobody. And they couldn't everybody there couldn't have been nicer it was like a family we were we shot that whole show with writers production offices post offices and sets and our locations everything in this decrepit abandoned hospital in north hollywood and everybody left us alone it was our own playpen and i was there for a number of years and those guys were so cool they let me it was a pa they were letting me come in there on the weekends sometimes and you know, bring a little crew and shoot a short film and make our own content. And I got to work with some of the writers and the writing staff and some of the, the directors of photography. I mean, these guys had real careers and done real stuff and they're working, they're willing to work with me on a Saturday to do something that, you know, me and a couple other guys had an idea for. It, it really was one of those things where I was like, this is what, this is what this can be. Like, this is amazing. And so I remember running around that hospital all the time. And and so much of, of my enthusiasm came from that period. Uh, I I'll never truly be able to thank Randall and Bill enough for for just launching you know the beginning of, of and showing me what how great it can be. So that was that was a fantastic time. I was I remember being there as a PA like a month into my job and watching the end of one of the episodes we were cutting and being like. Oh man, you know, talking to the editor and being like, dude, I heard this song that might be really good at the end of the show. And he's like, well, let me see it. And he took it and he cut it in. And he goes, yeah, it works, see what Bill thinks. And I was like, wait, what? You need the one I used to? that's awesome. I called my parents, I, you know, I remember I was out delivering stuff. I was up all night because we were cutting and trying to deliver a show in time for air. And I remember calling them at like 4 a.m. my time. You know, as I was driving home and that's seven a.m. back in the East Coast. And so my mom's waking up and I go, How are you doing? She says, What are you doing up so early? And then I have <laughs> yeah. gone home. It's been an amazing night. I'm exhausted. I'm cross-eyed. But like we were doing this, and then I got to sit in the editing room and watch how Bill cut time out of the show and you know all this stuff. And you know, and they were it was just fun. But yeah, I mean that led to I mean, we did I worked on Undateable mm-hmm. and we took that show from being a sitcom when I was on it for season two to a live finale that we shot two weeks after my first uh, daughter was born. We were prepping it. None of us had done a live show. None of, none of us had a clue what we were doing. We were making the entire thing by the seat of our pants. And I was like, I remember sitting in the delivery room and being like, you know, the day after the, the my daughter was born and going, so it's Saturday. Uh, your mom's here, hon. I'm probably going to be going back into work on Monday. Right. And she's like, I said, look, we got a live show. I'll be done in two weeks. Okay. It'll be cool. Right. And we did. And then we did it. We had so much fun doing that. We then took the whole third season was all live and we brought our composer on set. So all the little cues in between us, the scenes, he was jamming out on a little side set with a drummer just to transition us, you know, and we would, we would be live streaming within a scene. So they'd be doing a scene. Like if you and Sarah were doing a scene and then imagine Lori sitting on the side, live streaming from her own angle and live tweeting when she wasn't in the scene. Like if we were doing all these gymnastics like that, it was surreal. We had a, we had a social media influencer like room on the stage that was like a party that was going on where people were like live tweeting and live streaming and stuff all while the show was happening. It was all part of it. You know, it was all this sort of, it was a bit of a three ring circus, but we, we, it was fun to always push the boundaries. You know, we took, we had, we do scenes outside the stage. I mean, it's live, you know, like Bill Lewis said, we were, he was walking back in one day with the AD and we had a scene where Brent Morin was going to be outside doing a scene. He had to do the scene outside and then he had to run Like down this side of the stage, down this side of the stage, in the door, and then around back to the set. And we ran it all week. And there was like, I remember after the first run through, the AD goes to Bill. She goes, Bill, he's not going to make it. There's no way. He goes, don't worry. He'll make it. And the AD and Phil were walking in the night after dress rehearsal. And the AD goes, Phil, you think he's going to make it? He goes, all I know is it's going to be done at 830 either way. So going mean, to be taillights. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But the yeah. show's going to be fun. And sure enough, on the night, he sprinted all the way through and it still cracks me up because he comes pe- pounding through the door. <laughs> trying to get his first line out in the next scene. the yeah. uh, Whiskey Cavalier had a bunch of post-heavy stuff and we had a, a this fantastic uh, directing producer in Peter Atencio, who directed Keanu and uh, all the key and peels. And this guy was had an amazing vision for the show but because he was really involved in post we had to set up a editing setup in Prague and so for him to be able to work on editing and so I had to go over and make sure that was all working and and get the editing stuff up and running for that show while we were they were shooting all over the country you know and it was it was an amazing trip I'd never frankly I'd always wanted to go I'd never gotten to go to Europe so I got to go over to Prague and see some of that and watch how we were doing some of these scenes and then I got to go back to London this past year for Ted Lasso because we shot um, a bunch of these soccer sequences that had to take place in a big stadium. Really, they gave us the script with a description. and they figured it out, guys. So we did pre-visualization in that video game thing I was talking about. We set it all up and prepped it. We were talking to the director for weeks and figuring out how to shoot it and how it was going to cut into the show. And Then I went over there and you know, walked through it all with him and got to be there when we were actually shooting it because we were going to have to find a way to make it look real. And it was a blast. Like I, I keep coming back to just being grateful for it because by function of working with really creative and talented people that are nice people and good people and um, encouraging, you know, and they welcome, you know, initiative and and you sort of taking things and running with it. uh, I've gotten to have all these experiences. I got to, I got to work on a show with, um, with Jeff Schaefer that runs, um, he's the showrunner for Curb Enthusiasm with Larry David, which is brilliant. I work with him and the guy, this guy, Little Dicky. Guy's name is Dave Bird for that show, Dave. Dave is a unique individual. This guy had never, I mean, he's never run a television show before. He has a very distinct creative vision and, understand, and a great point of view that's so unique. And he knows it. And he's the only one that understands his own point of view. And working with the two of them And being able to help facilitate, you know, his vision coming to life and him being like, I want to do this. And me being like, I can do that, but you're going to have to do it a little bit like this. And he's like, all right, that's cool. Yeah, I can deal with that. You know, and being like, great. All right, we're going to be great then. Or him being like, no, that's not good enough. And saying, look, man, you're not going to get it to be better than this without us spending four times as much money. He's like, well, fine. Then can we do it more like this? You know, and and then Jeff Schaefer, you know, coming in like Bruce Helford or Bill Wood and sitting down and going, look, Dave, you're going to spend four times the money and get 5% increase in, in what you want. It's not going to be, it's 5% better. It's not worth your money. If you want to do it differently, we can look at it sideways and try this other way. And maybe that, you know, what do you think of that? And it's like, I want to do the sideways route. Let's try that. I think that's closer to what I want it to be. And so we got to do all kinds of stuff. We had this weird presentation we had to make where we were morphing his face into this grotesque, weird mashup of other, you know, celebrities and stuff like that. And playing with that with him was fun because he'd go, I don't know what I want it to be, but it should be grotesque and hilarious. And we're like, all right, let's see what we can come up with. You know, and we'd play with it and play with it. And then all, and he's like, no, it's it's not right. The timing is off and the flow is wrong. And so I'm like, all right, I have, I, I think I've got an idea of what you're looking for now caught up the VFX guy. We talked through the whole thing. and He goes, and the VFX guy says, I think I know what you're looking for now. Let me give this a try. And that harkens back to working with these guys where they enable these talented people. And I'm going, look, I just need you to, to, to drop all of the guidance I'm giving you. We brought this to you to do is because you're creative and you've got a, you've got a lot of talent when it comes to being unique with this. So here's all the guidance and now you've heard it. I want you to throw it in the garbage and just make us something that you think is cool. In this moment, you know, the way it's playing in the, in the scene, you watch and you go, oh, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Right. And he did, and we sent it over and they go, that there, that's what we were looking for, you know? And that's such a rewarding moment when you go, all right. So it was actually better to get to, to let them do their thing, you know, and let them do what they're good at. Most of my fun experiences in my career are all credit the people I've worked for and worked with because they've allowed me to be in situations and on shows and in moments and work on elements of a show where I get to play and I get to do something creative or different or fun that I wouldn't get to do in any other job, you know, or any other career. And it's, uh, so it's, I, it's mostly just me talking about how lucky I feel. (laughs) Which That's awesome. When this is done right.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of necessity. There's budgets to meet and there's deadlines that have to get achieved and you have to deliver something and there's all these voices, right? But what it really breaks down to when you get down to it is getting creative people, letting people use their skill, and then finding a way to make this dream possible within the framework of whatever limitations exist, but finding a way. And sometimes those limitations lead you to the most beautiful, better way of telling that story or sharing your experience. And that's, the, to me, what is the quintessential portion is when you work with good people, it can be crazy. It can be stressful. It can be chaotic. But, man, it's still fun. And you look at the person across from you, and you're like, I love that we got to share this moment. I love that we were together in this, in this challenge, adventure, and, and obstacle, and achievement.
1: I totally agree. It's, it, that's what I think when I keep coming back to what I love about producing is it's about the people. You know, that's, it, it's all about who you're working with because it's empowering them and helping them and managing them and, and doing all this to get everybody to give us the best version of what they can do.
0: What's the first thing you look at on a call sheet?
1: First thing I look at on a call sheet, okay. just the generic call time, because that for post production, that tells us when the footage is going to get sent over. Like if it's an eight o'clock call, we're going to get the lunch break around two to three. And they'll probably, if it's, a, you know, most days they'll wrap, you know, around 10 or, you know, we'll, it'll get to the, the end of day footage. You'll get over there around 10 or 1030.
0: What, what is the last thing, Kip, you want to see on a call sheet?
1: I think it's a a late call. <laughs> Anything afternoon means it's going to be a long night. What is your favorite thing to see at craft services? Oh man, you know what? Lately, it's become those uh, these apple slices with the peanut butter and the granola and them. That those have become a, my favorite go to for a for a snack. All right, now
0: what is the thing you hate to see at craft services?
1: the saran wrap where it shows everything is closed, the wrap, over, the wrap over everything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you can't, you it's closed off. You're done.
0: Yeah. All right, Kip, how do you define success?
1: Defining success? I think for me comes down to balance. It's a balance of being challenged and feeling capable. It's a balance of feeling like I'm being valued and getting to exercise sort of a, a balance of uh, a, for me, a balance of creativity and the other the other organized side of my brain and contribute to the vision of the show. But it's getting to work on things that I really feel proud of. It's getting to work on something where uh, I know that when this is, when it's done, I'm going to, you know, be happy to tell my friends and my family, Hey, check it out. You'll be glad. I think it won't be a waste of your time to check out what I was working on. there.
0: How are you doing
1: based on your definition of success? I feel pretty good about it, man ongoing internal um, roller coaster, feeling like I need to be doing more and need to be doing it faster and needing to be accomplishing more and being very grateful for this, the ride I've been on and, you know, wanting to make sure that I keep pushing myself Mm -hmm. because nobody else is going to really push me. Uh, I, one thing I've learned in this business is that People, when you get good at what you do, people are usually pretty happy with you staying right there and doing what you're good at. So every time you want to expand your reach or expand your skill set, it's gonna take pushing. It's gonna take a lot of one step forward, two steps back, a step closer, only to realize that it was actually only a quarter step closer. And being cognizant of that and enjoying the journey along the way because like I said, some of the stories I was telling you, some of the things that have been most fun for me, I happened when I was a PA, that had nothing to do with achieving my ultimate goals, but the environment and the experience was magical and was really fun. Uh, so I feel pretty good about how it's all going.
0: I look and, and I see you as a great success. And I think in this interview, you highlight why. And for me, what you did is I come pretty highly motivated, but... You made me excited again. You inspired me. And what you said is really apropos. And it's something that I face and struggle with is when you're good at, especially when you work in one area and you get good at something and you become known for something, people like to keep people in those boxes because they like to have people they can depend on in certain roles. So if you want to grow, you have to really expand and push. And, and it's not always easy. And people are not always comfortable with that you know, this is something I always told my kids is um, going back to you being a biology guy is lobsters, right? Lobsters. We don't know exactly how old they are. They have an exoskeleton. We're not a hundred percent sure what the process is. We just know in order for them to grow, they have to shed the shell of protection and become completely vulnerable to the world. And I always take that as a reminder is so from time to time. And you reminded me again, and what you said is, yeah, it's okay to be vulnerable and to be a little uneasy and to be exposed to the elements and the world around you, knowing that you're doing something new because that's the only way for you to grow and to kind of grow a new, thicker, tougher shell.
1: I think it's a great analogy, man. Uh, you know, it's it's what I'm it's what I'm doing on this pilot right now that that is it's a, and hearing you articulate it is a great reminder to me because it's. You go into these things and there is a balance of wanting to project confidence, you know, let people know they can count on you, balancing that with being honest and asking questions to learn, knowing when and how and who to ask the questions of, so that you can learn and still be in a position where, they know, you know, where the people that need to can depend on you.
0: All right, Kip, what's the one thing you want on every single set?
1: That's a tough one. Uh, if I, my first answer was going to say Randall Winston.
0: <laughs> hey, that's a great choice. You know, I, I love Randall. It's one of the reasons why i reached out to him. I hope people see his interview because the tent poles of being, um, strong, calm, and kind, I thought was a brilliant thing he said. And I love that in a environment because I think that really shapes and, and he set the tone and I think, I'm excited to watch the sets where you set the tone.
1: <laughs> Thank you, man.
0: What's the first thing you would eliminate from any set? Uh, assholes. That's the frustration is like, man, we don't need that here. Go. See ya.
1: Right. That's, that's the only thing. I mean, then that comes again, you know, back to the same thing I keep talking about, but with Bill and Randall, there was a, it was a simple, no asshole policy. It held. And that was why it was such a fun place to be, because that was really the only thing you could get fired for. The only thing you could, you know, be released for was really being an asshole. Because everybody needed, you know, everybody was in this together, um, and it makes a huge difference in what the the entire experience and the and the whole show and it comes out on camera too. Hundred
0: percent. You know that
1: you can feel that when you watch some of these shows that you can feel that they had so much fun doing it.
0: Yeah. Especially comedy, but in general, in everything. If, if, yeah. if you love the people you work with, everything rises. So now, what is the best gift you've gotten from working on a project?
1: Uh, they, on, on Scrubs, right, right before the writers' strike, right when the things were kind of in their heyday, uh, they, we had a year, we would do these huge Christmas parties and every department would come up with a gift and do it for the whole crew. So one year we got um, the cast, got everybody um, beach cruiser bikes and the producers got everybody director's chairs. And that combination was pretty amazing. And I actually still have both of those. Um, Randall talked
0: about the bikes. He talked about everybody riding around on their bikes. I thought that's a quintessential example of an inclusionary thing where directors chairs you see on set so for everyone to have one i think it says we're all together and then a beach cruiser where you guys actually went out and rode bikes together as like this is something we're going to do and something fun and we're we're active together i think it's a beautiful thing yeah yeah it's so fun what do you want those people who worked with you to remember about you
1: i i hope they had a good time working with me i hope they felt uh i hope they felt like i had their back having the backs of the people I was working for. So they knew they could count on me or having the backs of the people that were working for me to know that they could, you know, that they could do what they needed to do. And I, I'd, I'd protect them. Either one of those.
0: Perfect. All right. What is the legacy that you want your loved ones to take from your life?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, my loved ones. I think it's uh, a, a combination as everything is for me of Curiosity and ambition, grounded and sort of driven by kindness and uh, an inclusion. If that's enough catchwords in one sentence,
0: no, it's perfect. You know, it's funny is um, I have two production companies, one of my own and one with my writing partner, and inclusion is in the name of both of them. So it's funny that. That's the word you used because, you know, we're already kind of in kindred spirits, but it really is that in, that thing of wanting people around you to know that they're wanted, that they're valued, wanting people in your life to know that you care, that there's some balance between work and desire and commitment and, and joy and fun and, and that all of these things matter and that they're all included and that everybody else is included, that there is an inclusiveness to your life on all levels. I think it's, yeah. it's perfect.
1: I completely agree with you, man. And you know, it's—I mean, look—we're—we're we're making entertainment. It's a fun. I—I I casually like to say that it's—it's uh, it's the longest summer job I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, I, know, like I keep waiting for the summer job to end and to have to go back to real the real world and have to work. It's, you know, go to school and do all the hard stuff. And, <laughs> no, no, we like this. Let's keep it this way. Yeah, and Let's I can, make it this way. And somehow the summer just keeps going. And so I'm, I'm trying to keep this summer alive as long as I can.
0: I think it's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge. I, I just can't wait to work with you more. Uh, I can't wait to be on set and collaborate in a more direct fashion than we get to right now with the remote stuff. And I really look forward to being able to do projects with you in the future. It's, it's such an exciting possibility for me
1: oh man me too i I, it's been such a treat getting to know you man it's you know i I remember watching you when i was a kid and just and watching on the show and then i got to work with you and i was just amazed and i think you might be the nicest guy in show business and and on top of it you have this uh amazing curiosity that you you want to learn all of it you want to you've you've comfortably put yourself in experiencing so many aspects of what it takes to make a show or a production. And you do it with, with, with enthusiasm and joy. Uh, I, I, love, I love working with you. I'd love to work more with you, man. It's, it's, it's a treat. It's been a treat getting to know you and, uh, and thank you so much for having me on here. I'm, I'm flattered.
0: Absolutely, feeling is mutual. So we'll celebrate more and hopefully a lot more projects together. Sounds great. Thanks for checking out Fish's Call Sheet. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. We have a lot of other episodes where we cover a lot of different categories in our entertainment industry, but I'm so happy to celebrate all the people who make production possible. If you'd like more or if you'd like to see some of the video with some of the visuals, you can always check us out at any of our social medias at Fish's Call Sheet or check us out on YouTube.